words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. The gospel story we've just heard has, well it's a great story and it has so many layers to it. And to explore those layers I want to do something slightly uh, unusual and I want to actually go back to last week's story uh, from Luke's gospel as a way of getting into it. So last week Wendy helped us explore the unfinished story of the two lost sons, which we normally describe as the parable of the prodigal son, which is in itself a remarkable story. I think uh, it's one of the most remarkable stories in the Gospels. I think it is a story that holds all that is at the heart of what Jesus was on about. If you want a summary of the good news of Jesus... The story of the two lost sons is it. It is what the gospel was about. So to help us think about last week's gospel a little bit more, a question. Who was Jesus telling the story to and why? These are quite crucial questions for understanding the gospel, that gospel. And it is remarkable how many people don't know the answer. Any guesses? Well, he's telling it. I mean, I've asked that question of clergy and bishops and they didn't know the answer either. So don't feel bad. Uh, But it is really important for understanding the gospel. So Jesus is telling the story to scribes and Pharisees and he's telling them the story because they are very unhappy that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And why are they unhappy? Because when there is a rule of hospitality... So if somebody comes to your house, you are to offer them hospitality. But unless they are a person of equal honour to you, you do not eat with them. You offer them food, you offer them hospitality, and then you send them on their way. Or if somebody of lower honour invites you in to eat, you would just politely refuse. Because to eat, to accept that invitation, and to eat with them is to honour them and is to bless them. And so, as a rabbi, when Jesus accepted their invitation, he was honouring them and blessing them. He was, in effect, restoring them to the community. And the scribes and the Pharisees were a little bit upset about that, because they said, they are sinners. How how could they possibly be amongst God's chosen people? So, it was quite a big theological thing. So let's just hold that for a moment, because I want to introduce another element into this as well, which is the idea that I've been using for the last few weeks from Brian McLaren, that we all see the world uh, through a particular worldview, through a particular pair of glasses. And the three pairs of glasses that he suggested most of us see the world through are rivalry, where there has to be a winner, and compliance, where you have to know the rules and obey the rules, and if you don't, you get punished. And this is clearly one of the worldviews at work here. And then meaningless mechanism, which really isn't at work here at all. So, both of these sons, and much more importantly, the people listening to the story, the scribes and the Pharisees, all see the world and see themselves and see God through one of these lenses. Probably compliance. Although there's probably a bit of rivalry going on for some of them as well. 
And both sons in the story, just like those listening to the story, felt entitled. And neither of the sons, just like those hearing the story, really understood who they truly were. That they were both, or all, beloved sons. Despite everything that they had done, they were still beloved sons. Now in the story, sonship is not something to be attained. Both sons thought they were entitled, both thought they deserved more. The younger son thought he needed his inheritance now. The older son thought that he had been a servant long enough and deserved the trappings of being a son as well. But in fact in the story, sonship is something not to be earned, not to be attained, but to be lived out. Everyone who has listened to the story also struggles with this. The scribes and the Pharisees thought they were sons because they obeyed the law. They too thought that they were entitled because of their obedience. And they're getting really cheesed off when groups of people who have shown no inclination to follow the law are being treated as, well, with honour and blessing by Jesus. It's not right. It's wrong. In this story, they are told that they are beloved children of God. And those groups that are not entitled to that honour are also beloved children of God. So Jesus tells the story, and sadly we usually miss the point. We think that sonship is something that is earned through repentance. So, in fact, I told this story to a group, and they said, well, the son repented, and then he went back to his father, and he was forgiven. But actually, if you look at that story, the son never repents. When he's sitting in the pig pen, he's simply sitting there going, if I stay here, I'm going to die. If I go home, and if I say the right words, he might just employ me as a servant. And they have more than enough to eat. At no point was he really going to say sorry. And even if he was, when he gets home, he doesn't get to say anything. Because his father rushes out and embraces him before he has a chance to say a word. Wraps him in his arms and tells his servants to place the cloak back on him and the rings and the sandals. And then, then he says his words. So the son is not forgiven because he repents. He is just welcomed back as a son. And then, and then he does repent. But it's after he's already forgiven. His repentance is not in order to earn forgiveness. His repentance is a response to the love and the forgiveness that he has shown by the father. In that moment of being embraced, the younger son realises who he truly is. Not because of anything he has done. He realises that he is a beloved son. And he realises that he is not worthy of that title. He's not entitled to it. And so he repents of all that has stopped him seeing that up to that point. All that has stopped him living that out up to that point. 
And the story ends with the other son and the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees are this key point in all of this. Still locked into seeing themselves as entitled because of how they had lived their lives. Still thinking they had done enough to earn their place as beloved sons. And unwilling to see anyone else as a beloved son. All this takes us back to worldviews and gospels. One son let go of how he saw the world. He saw the world through a pair of glasses that just deluded him. And in that moment of being embraced by the father, he took those glasses off and he put on a new pair of glasses. The glasses of love. He saw himself as beloved. Not because of anything he had done. He just was. And in doing so, he loses control of his destiny. You see, the worldviews of rivalry and compliance, you're in control. If I obey the rules, then I will earn this. If I am on the winning side, if I choose the right side, if I do the right things, I am in control. But when you're a beloved son, you're not in control. You just are. And that changes everything. Because now his life is not lived to earn anything. It is lived in response to being a beloved son. And this is the fourth worldview that Brian McLaren talks about. The worldview or the lens of love. And this is at the heart of the message of Jesus. The heart of the gospel. That we are forgiven not through any actions of our own, but because of God's generosity. We, like all those who have heard this story, are invited to see ourselves and God and the world through this lens, that we are beloved. And we're invited to live that out. Because sonship is not to be earned, it is to be lived out. We are to live in response to this love freely given, this extravagant, life-giving, life-changing love. So what does it look like when we see the world and God and self in this way? Well, that brings us to today's story, the story of Mary. Now, Mary must have been a remarkable, remarkable person. Because two of the Gospel writers talk about her in very remarkable ways. Luke talks about her, Mary and Martha, and their brother. And Jesus comes, and what does Mary do? She sits at his feet. Which for us is a little bit remarkable, because really she should be out the back helping her sister Martha serve the meal. But actually it's extraordinarily remarkable, because she is a woman, and disciples are men. And there she is, sitting amongst the men as a disciple. And Jesus does nothing. Can you imagine the ruffled feathers going on in that story? What's this woman doing here? She's a woman. You can't be a disciple. It's all wrong. You're missing bits. Shoot. But she sits there. She doesn't care. 
And in this story, well, she breaks a whole lot of other conventions that say she should be doing none of these things. Now, this story, or a version of it, is in every gospel, which is in itself unusual because a lot of stories don't make it into all four gospels. Three of them, sometimes, because they use the same sources, but John had completely different sources. His layout of his gospel, the story he tells, are all different from the other three. But a version of the story is in all four. So this one then. The setting is Jesus. It's in a kind of interesting part of the gospel. In the previous chapter, well, the previous chapter is all about raising Lazarus. So I started at verse 1. Chapter 11 is basically the raising of Lazarus. So in case we'd forgotten from the end of the previous chapter to the beginning of this chapter, we're reminded that he's just raised Lazarus a little bit beforehand. So that's a remarkable story. And as a result of that, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, get together and they decide that Jesus is way too dangerous and that he will have to die. So Jesus goes off out into the wilderness with his disciples and he waits. And so this is the story of him on his journey back to Jerusalem. And because we know that the Sanhedrin have decided that he will die, we know that if he returns to Jerusalem, he will be arrested and he will be crucified. So the pall of death just hangs in the story. We've had Lazarus, who was dead and was raised back to life not long beforehand. Just imagine the smell of that and the kind of impending smell of Jesus' own death. And then straight after the story, we have people meeting again and deciding that actually Lazarus is also a problem and he's probably going to have to be put to death as well. And then we have Jesus entering Jerusalem. So there's just this astounding tension in the story. And in response to that, well, Mary's response is bold and unexpected. She takes the role of a servant or a slave and she washes Jesus' feet. But she doesn't wash Jesus' feet with water. She anoints them with incredibly expensive perfume. And then treating him as if he was, they were in private, and he was her husband or a brother, she lets her hair out and wipes his feet with her hair. Her response is one of incredible extravagance and, and incredible love. She has been found like the younger brother, the younger son, by love. Jesus has freed her. And she is able to respond to Jesus in ways that she would never have dreamed of. And yet she does, with incredible courage. And her story is found in two Gospels. She understands that she is a beloved child of God. And she lives that out. And her actions 
fill the house, a house under the gloom of death with the fragrance of life. Our smell is the only one of our senses that bypasses the logical bits of our brain and goes straight to the emotional parts of our brain. We have no control over our response to smell. So in that tense-filled situation, just imagine the response of those people as they smelled that perfume. Mary was found by love, and being found by love is a dangerous thing. Mary responds to that love by breaking a whole lot of social taboos and offering that love back to the one who found her. It is an act of deep compassion which Jesus recognises. Her actions are not to earn anything, not to prove anything, but are simply actions in response to what she has already encountered. She is no longer in control, but is responding to God. That contrasts with the other person in the story, Judas. Judas is still trying to show who he is. Now John says he's a crook anyway. The other three gospel writers are a little bit more charitable. But there is that sense of him still trying to prove his worthiness. He's like the older son. And still trying to work out of a out of a worldview of entitlement. And the trouble with his worldview of entitlement is that it allows him to use other people as well as not as people, not as beloved, but just as objects really. And so for for Judas, the poor aren't really people. They're not really beloved. He's not showing any kind of charity, really. He's just using them to show how generous he is. But when you understand that you are beloved because you have done nothing, but simply because you are, to live that out means you have to see everyone else as beloved as well. And so no one can be used for your benefit to show how generous you are, to show how worthy you are. Because you can't show that anyway. And so we have Mary's extravagant love and Judas using people to show how good he is. Lent is a time for us to reflect on how we see the world, how we see ourselves, and how we see God. Lent is a time for us to take off glasses that stop us understanding that we are beloved, and put on new glasses. Lent is a time for us to move from being the older brother to the younger brother, to move from being Judas to being Mary. Lent is a time for us to think about how we live out being sons and daughters of God. What bold and outrageous things we 
might do in response to the love that we are already loved by. So I invite us over the next couple of weeks as we look towards Good Friday to think about what it means for you to be a beloved child of God, not because of anything you have done, but simply because you are. And how you might, like Mary and the younger son, respond to that.